Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, Poddleters. I hope you're doing well. In today's episode, I speak to Stephanie Yeboah. We talk about fat bodies, race, and the way that those two things intersect. It might be slightly triggering for those of you who have had disordered eating or perhaps who exist in a fatter body and have struggled with the way that people have treated you. So I just wanted to say that in case anyone feels like this might be a slightly difficult conversation to listen to. Stephanie was so generous in telling me her story and about her growing up and how she's kind of overcome fat phobia. And she now is a body image advocate and activist, I suppose you could say. She's also an author and her book, Happy Fastly, Fastly Ever After, sorry, is coming out in September, I believe. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I absolutely loved meeting Stephanie and it was such a great chat. Please do rate, review and subscribe and I will see you next week. Bye. Hi guys, and welcome to Adulting. Today I am joined by Stephanie Yeboah. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you <laughs> so much for coming on. So for people who don't know who you are, please could you tell us a little bit about you? Okay, so I am a plus size style blogger, um, freelance journalist, uh, activist, and uh, an author, oh, this is my first one, Amazing. I'm that now, um, author of a book coming out 3rd of September called Fatally Ever After. Um, yeah, and I'm just online, just ranting at people, arguing with racists, arguing with fatphobics. Yeah, Amazing. the usual. <laughs> that title is so good. Oh, thank you. I'm so proud of it. Yeah. It my brain. I'm like, oh. I'm so proud of it. When it clocked, I was like... That is the best That's thing. It. Thank you. So this episode is going to be called, like, When Do We Start to Accept Fat Bodies? But what I've just realised is, obviously, as a woman of colour, the intersection of race is hugely important because when we really accept black women could be a question in of itself, let mm. alone fat black women. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really pertinent point to bring up because I wanted to ask you if you could kind of explain where body... I know you say you're more body acceptance, mm-hmm. but the body positivity movement, mm-hmm. could you explain where that came from? Because I think a lot of people recently in the media as well, it's been co-opted by a lot of like slim white women mm-hmm. and yoga teachers and stuff. Could you explain where that really stemmed from and what that really means? Yeah, sure. So I I actually did used to be a part of the body positivity community back when it sort of had its resurgence in like 2008, 2009. So it originally um, started in America in the 1950s slash 1960s, but it wasn't called the body positivity movement. It was called, I can't remember what the full name of it was, was, but I know that the acronym was FAFSA. So Fat Acceptance Society of... Was it like Fat Allegiance of... Oh, I feel like I remember. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. And that was um, predominantly sort of spurned by um, plus-size Jewish women, plus-size black women. And then it kind of just died down a bit, I guess, as the trend sort of moved on. In the 70s and 80s, we saw, you know, different body shapes uh, being in vogue. And then didn't really hear anything for a while until about 2007, 2008, when Tumblr was like the platform that everybody was using. Um, And it's actually a platform that a lot of influencers sort of came from. So from Tumblr, they went on to Instagram and then 
owned blogs and things like that. So around 2008, um, a lot of plus size black women and a lot of plus size black queer women specifically started using the hashtags body positivity, fat acceptance and body acceptance movement. And with these hag, uh, these hags, with these, <laughs> <laughs> with these hashtags, <laughs> oh dear. with these hashtags, they would write essays. They would upload photos of themselves in lingerie or bikinis. Um, and they would just write um, poetry or whatever means of expression that they wanted to convey to their audiences about how much they loved their bodies, how much they loved their cellulite and their roles, all of these things. And it came, it became somewhat of a safe space for a lot of plus size black women to sort of celebrate themselves in an industry and in a community that didn't really celebrate us. Um, so that's where I um, first saw the movement because I created a Tumblr actually to track weight loss. So I wanted oh, to, wow. yes, yeah, so it was like a weight loss blog for me. And I wanted, at the time I wasn't body positive at all and I still really hated my body. And so I thought, let me start a Tumblr blog where I can document how much weight I can lose in like six months. And my target was like 150 pounds oh or something like that. Obviously it didn't happen. I was just like, because it didn't happen because as I was scrolling through my timeline on Tumblr, I would see all of these posts from plus size black women, women that looked like me. And that was one of the first times that I was like, actually, I can love myself. Like yeah. it's okay for me to love myself. And so from Tumblr, a lot of the women moved or migrated over to Instagram. So it predominantly happened in America first. So we have... Um, um, influencers such as Gabby Gregg from Gabby Fresh, um, Chastity, Valentine. So all of these um, plus size black women who started on Tumblr migrated towards Instagram and started to use the hashtags again. A lot of them created plus size fashion blogs as well. And then it slowly sort of took over in the UK as well. So a lot of us who were on, who were in this community in the UK uh, on Tumblr migrated over to Instagram. And then it just became this really underground kind of safe space where fat women could just love ourselves loudly and unapologetically. And we would have these uh, message boards on Facebook about where can I get this these clothes or um, just like the most random of things like what bikinis are good for plus size bodies. And so once the whole influencer thing started to take off, we noticed that brands started utilizing influencers. So you have brands like Simply Be and Evans and other plus size brands who are like, oh wow, you know, there's this huge market of mm. plus size bloggers. Let's start using them in campaigns. So for a while it was actually quite cool in that you would get plus size brands using plus size bloggers. As time goes by, people start to pick up on the body positivity hashtag. Um, a lot of people still didn't really understand it. A lot of people thought as some still do today, promoting obesity. And then we get the uh, resurgence of models such as Ashley Graham. Um, so I think when Ashley Graham came onto the scene, that was the first turn point in body positivity right. because they saw this, she's at most a size 14. Yeah. Um, white woman, high cheekbones, big bum, big boobs, small waist. And they made her the face of body positivity because she was a model that was bigger than a size eight. Yeah. 
And so for a long while, you know, we were all like, oh, wow, we've got representation. We've got a size 14 on the catwalk. Amazing. Um, but then we also had other models coming up. So like Iskra Lawrence yeah. as well, who's probably like a size 12, size 10. Um, and other very beautiful white women with, you know, hourglass shaped bodies. And it got to a point where we were just like, hold on. None of these bodies look like the bodies that helped create the movement. They're not representing bodies that look like ours. And the media, because we still live in a world where sex sells, the media started to use influencers, spokesmodels and models for the movement who still had a degree of being very, very, very attractive. And can we swear on it? Yeah, yeah. Fuckable, <laughs> basically. So it, it was almost a sense of, you know, we'll do this whole body positivity thing and we'll support bigger bodies, but as long as you're still fuckable, as yeah. long as you've got all the uh, curves in the right places, we'll support it. And that's essentially what it's turned into now. So it's sort of, it's it's been shifted towards women that already have privileged bodies. Yeah. And by that, I mean not privilege in the sense of how they see themselves, but how society sees them. So basically what I mean is that they can walk along the street and not be, not have people take pictures of them and make them into memes, not have people call them you fat this in public, not have people watch them eat, not have people um, video them as they're walking, which is something that happened to my friend actually yesterday when oh we God. were in Oxford Street. Um, my friend is like a size 28 and she's, she's actually a model, like she's stunning. And we were just walking down Regent Street and there were these um, tourists who had his, he had his IG live on and he was taking, he was like zooming in on her and we didn't want to like accuse him too early because we were like, oh no, maybe he's just a tourist and vlogging. But then he started calling her cow, cow, (gasps) cow with the video. And then my friend, my other friend went up to him and just started shouting at him so savagely in the middle of the street. He was so embarrassed. And then I obviously joined in because I was like, (laughs) and just started savagely shouting at him. And, you know, these are the kinds of things that as larger plus size women, we have to put up with all the time, having ads directed at us, telling us to lose weight. So in terms of privileges, it just means somebody that can blend in almost with society without being made to feel like they're the biggest person in the room. And so I decided not to align myself with the body positivity movement anymore because I feel like it doesn't align with my interests and I feel like it doesn't represent myself and a lot of other women who were sort of there at the beginning it no longer feels like a safe space for us to celebrate our bodies um and in turn it's become a huge you know even this even though this is a movement that is that was created to celebrate our differences and our curves and everything that makes us unique, there is still a standard of beauty within body positivity. So if you do not, for the most part, if you're not white with high cheekbones and an hourglass shaped body, you won't really get that much representation because you have to be beautiful in the eyes of Western society. That was such a long answer. I'm so sorry. That was perfect. (laughs) There's so much I want to take from that. I mean, Mm -hmm. three years ago when I was still very much being like fitness blogger, I used the term body positivity on a post where I was literally shredded and eating very disordered. And I hadn't, because of media representation of fatter bodies and women of colour, I had not seen how that hashtag had got into my my vision Mm. from where it had come from. And it wasn't until luckily someone commented being like, you shouldn't use this hashtag. Uh, and which was actually amazing of them because that was before I think people it was very wide widely known that like it had been co-opted mm. and that was the kind of the turning point to me to learning about 
because I've been one of those people that thought, oh, um, well, it's just bad for you. Like I, I had such bad, I mean, I think we all are brought up fat phobic. So you can be oh, fat phobic yeah. about yourself and I've had to like unlearn so much. So I can completely understand why that wouldn't feel like a safe space or a, sp- a space that you can even affiliate yourself with because the, some of the people that even today still hashtag body positivity and they are bordering on, you know, potentially having an e- eating disorder or something. Yes. Yeah. It's really, really difficult and it's really sad. But what's fascinating and amazing now is that these voices are coming up and I love that social media is being a vehicle for that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, mm-hmm. we have this one side where hopefully women like myself and other people who have privilege are starting to understand that privilege, recognise it and also diversify our fees in that like I now try to follow women and men and whoever of all different types of bodies and mm-hmm. backgrounds and ethnicities and all those things. But then on the other hand, you have the world which is kind of full of... Um, as you say, this very Eurocentric beauty, this new kind of Instagram face, mm. lots of plastic surgery, mm. really rife in diet culture. And I think it's a really interesting polarised time yeah. to be living in. I, I imagine that you have, as we were talking about previously just before, the echo chamber of certain spaces where it's very safe and everyone seems to understand. And then I imagine like if something gets posted on Facebook, which seems to be the worst place for comments, <laughs> you suddenly see that there are swathes of people out there who still can't even fathom the idea that you can exist in a fatty body and should be allowed to access happiness genuinely people don't believe that do they no not at all so I'm lucky in that and I think everybody should do this they should um just what's the word I'm looking for curate Curate, that's it they should create their feeds full of um images and photos that make them feel good about themselves so whether it's following people within the fat acceptance body acceptance body positivity whatever whichever images make you feel good about your body, it's so important to have those images on repeat if you do use social media. Facebook is one of the worst places for comments because I feel like the majority of people on Facebook are of an older generation still. And I feel like you can't, for the most part, you can't change their minds on a lot of things. They're so stuck in their ways. And I find that anytime a brand who have Facebook pages, they post images of either myself or other influencers who's who's wearing one of their clothes. You get some of the most horrible, fat-shaming comments on there. And the funny thing is is that I've noticed is that some of the worst fat-shaming comes from other fat women. And that's because they are projecting their self-hate onto, um, a lot of the times, younger influencers who are wearing crop tops and short skirts and mesh and all of these things. And they're so used to being told that they have to cover up and they're so used to being told to wear butterfly print and cold shoulders and smocks and empire lines. And they're just so used to just, you know, assimilating to what society has said is good for them that when they see somebody younger or just somebody being bold and showing flesh, it's like, no, you shouldn't do that. Mm. And they can't fathom that a fat person can reach this level of confidence. Um, So I try not to go on Facebook that often um, I don't really go on it at all, really, no. to be fair. It's just there, just in case a family member, like, from another country wants to get it. Yeah, or random videos or random someone videos. links to you. Exactly. But for the most part, I think, yeah, curating your feed is so important. Can I ask you about growing up? I mean, you said that mm. you came to find this... So you started off having a weight loss account, which is exactly what my Instagram started off. For some weird reason, I feel like Instagram and those and Tumblr, I remember going like those awful like pro anorexia websites when I was younger. That the Anna ones, really yeah. Really rife on mm-hmm. Tumblr. 
So you obviously growing up must have, and don't talk about this if it's too stressful, but mm. evidently you've had a huge mindset shift and mm. come to your own fast acceptance place. Mm. What was it like for you when you found those body positivity accounts and how long did it take you to really believe? Because it's it's really, it, fat phobia is so pervasive and mm. so entrenched in everything mm. that it, I, I, it takes a long time to undo it and I'm not even in a fat body. So mm. I can imagine that existing in a fat body and then having everyone else's opinions on you as well as your own mm. would be a very long process of undoing. Yeah, I mean, it's taken maybe 15 years or so, I would say. Um, for me, so my main um, catalyst, I guess, for it was fashion. I have been such a huge fan of fashion since the age of like eight. Um, I remember like coming home from school and watching fashion TV with my cousin. I used to buy Vogue with like the pocket money, like it's like four pounds back then. Yeah. And um, I would just buy Vogue and I would rip the pages out and I would make collages on my room. I was just, it wasn't the models. It was just like the outfits. Yeah. I was very like rah-rah when I was younger. I loved it. And growing up, I realized that there were no plus size fashion um, spots for me to wear, like I had to go to, and you know, no shade to Evans or Simply B, but the clothes were a bit aging and I was like yeah. 14, 15 at the time. And I was just like, well, like, you know, this is, if this is all I have. So once I started seeing plus size women in the community on Tumblr, cutting up tops to make crop tops or um, finding some niche website where they have really cute bits of under plus size underwear. I was like, okay, this is this is the inner me. Like, this is how I want to channel my personality because I was very quiet as a child, and because of getting bullied and things like that. And I knew that there was like a creative in me that really wanted to come out, and I knew that I wanted to use fashion as a way to express myself. And so, it was just a case of, um not so much pinning because Pinterest wasn't around back then, but I guess saving and archiving pictures of even women that were like a size 12 to 14, saving those pictures and just like praying that one day like a brand will, you know, um, launch. So when ASOS Curve launched mm. in 2014, 13, 13, that was the day that I was like, okay, now I can get my mesh, I can get my jumpsuits, my mini skirt, like all of these things. And wearing clothes that made me feel confident was honestly like the best thing that could ever happen yeah. to me. I It was really a case of me faking it till I made it because I was still trying to sort of come out of that sort of fat phobic way of thinking. But even back then it was still a bit difficult for me because I was so exposed to all of these different fat phobic um, bits of media. And unfortunately, um, around the time, so no, just before, was it just before? I can't remember now. It must have been during or before I started my page on Tumblr, I um, wanted to go to Barcelona for my birthday. And I think this was, this was the pinnacle that, <laughs> that's on my dishwasher. Um, this was the pinnacle of where I was like, okay, I need to actually learn how to love my body because this is ridiculous. So from the age of about 10, my parents or my mom put me on Weight Watchers. Um, and in turn, that taught me such destructive, terrible eating habits to the point where I was eating like 800 calories a day. Mm. Nobody saw it as an eating disorder because I was fat. Fat people don't have eating disorders they're doing what's best for them and that's the narrative that we've had to kind of live with for the longest time because people assume that when you're fat you can't have a disorder 
Anyway, um, I wanted to go to Barcelona for my birthday and I thought, you know, I've never worn a bikini before. In order to wear a bikini, I have to have a fat stomach. So I did like a countdown and I said, I'm going to lose four, was it four stone in four months or whatever the case may be. And I did really, really destructive things to my body. So I won't go into all of the, because I don't want to give anyone ideas, but like it just included a lot of fasting, included a lot of like laxatives, like these really random diet pills that my aunt actually suggested to me. And then I bought loads and then the website just mysteriously disappeared. Mm -hmm. Like I bought them on the dark web. Like it was really, really, I don't know if, I mean, I don't know what they contained, but they made me, they suppressed my appetite. Um, I was exercising, You, funnily enough, I used to exercise to the Gillian Michaels DVD. She's, anyway, she's another problem now, but um, she had this DVD that came out called 30 Second Shred. And so I would work out to it like three times a day. I ended up losing all the weight. Went to Barcelona, had my little pink free bikini, I remember. But I, my mental health was just shit. I was the worst I'd ever been mental health wise. And I already suffer from depression. So this was just another trigger for me. Um, I was throwing up all the time, not because of the bulimia, but because I guess my body was just feeling really ill because of all the starvation mode, all of these things. Um, I kept looking in the mirror and thought I had to lose more weight. I've lost this, but I could do with losing more because it suddenly became quite addictive. And then I was just feeling, I just felt really shit. Cause I was like, I was on the beach and nobody was looking at me. And I was like, I lost weight for you. <laughs> like, why is nobody paying me any attention? And that was the moment that I was like, I'm literally destroying my body for the benefit of others. Like, my all my body does is work hard to keep me alive and I'm treating it like this and I'm harming it like this. And I, I almost had to take my body as a separate entity and look at it and just be like, I'm so sorry because I would never treat another human being like this. But I've done horrible physical things to you and yet you're still trying to keep me alive. And when I clocked that, that was when I was like, okay, I need to start apologizing to you instead of apologizing on behalf of you because we're in this together, me and my body, like this is all I have. And I have to treat it with the utmost care and respect. And if it wants to be fat, then I will let it be fat and just do things that make me feel good and feel healthy, regardless of how much weight I carry. Um, but yeah, that Barcelona trip was when I was like, nah, I can't keep doing this to my body. It's it's unbelievable how much uh, I relate to everything you said. I've done all of the things you just said. And mm. I've always been straight-sized. Mm. And as a young person thought I was fat. And at the same kind of tipping point as you did where I got so lean and no one, I look back on the pictures and it's actually like I look ill. Everyone's like, you look absolutely great. Mm. And that was when, same as you, my mental health was shit. I literally, I remember I had a boyfriend at the time, completely lost my libido was so tired every like things that bring you joy mm. I couldn't get joy and I remember stopping and thinking I'm literally looking the best in vertical commas I actually looked awful looking back I've ever looked mm -hmm. I've never been so small in my life and I feel like shit and my brain went oh so it's not my it's not my body I always thought if I I remember waking up every day at school and thinking if only I could be skinny then then I could do this then I could. and it yeah. was the first thought I had when I woke up in the morning first thing I thought when I went to bed yeah. and my god my life's so much better now that I'm not stuck in this prison of like because diet culture, the reason it's so scary is because you can always be smaller. It doesn't matter whether mm -hmm. you're a size two or a size 20. Mm -hmm. This idea, that especially as women, the smaller you are, the better you are. It can get any, it's just so fucked up. Yeah. 
It's horrible. And it's so weird because it's such a westernized thing as well. Yeah. Because in Africa, sure, fat phobia is a is a thing. It's definitely a thing. But it's always been more socially acceptable to be curvy. Not too curvy, but curvy as in like a 14 to 18 is like generally seen as like, oh, wow, like she's really pretty kind of thing. And it's often slimmer women that are um, treated really horribly. And so I just find it so bizarre. Like I find it, I don't know. I just find, like, I don't know. I, I don't understand where this, obsession with thinness comes from um because on one hand you can't like even if we get into the health debate like you can never tell somebody's health by how they look um and it just makes me so sad that we have this diet industry that profits off of people's insecurities and I've never been you know when I was younger I did all the diets I was on the Cambridge diet lighter life um the Atkins diet the water four diet which was one that you literally just drank water and ate mm. apples and that was so damaging and I remember with the lighter life diet after seven days and my actually my mum was really cruel in this because I remember I was doing it and obviously you can't eat any solid food for like three months and I would go to her house and she would be making like a fry up so while I'm there just drinking my water she would just come with like her full plate of her fry up and just waft it under my nose for band she thought she was being funny now at the time I thought she was being funny as well but then like 30 to 40 minutes later I actually passed out because I don't know if the scent triggered something in my stomach I don't know but um I had to go to the hospital not the hospital the GP and everything and apparently like my heart rate was like just beating a thousand times a minute and it was because I hadn't eaten this was seven days into the diet you're not even allowed to chew gum. Like it was just literally water and then these like really weird shakes, horrible shake things. Um, and I can't believe that that's still legal. That That's a, still a legal thing because your body, I just don't think bodies are made to go on such extreme diets. And one thing that I've always said is that even if you do want to go on a diet, it's so important to, if you do want to change your body, to do it from a place of self-love. Because if you try and diet from a place of, I hate my body, you're going to wake up every day, look at yourself and wish it was gone and want for it to go faster. And in that process of you wanting your body to shrink as quickly as possible, you're going to do destructive things to your body so that the weight can go. So the things that we mentioned, such as, you know, starvation and pills and all of these things. And yeah, you'll lose the weight as quickly as possible. But then after a while, you're it's not going to be sustainable and the weight will come back and you will feel even shitter. Mm. So if you love yourself from, if you want to lose weight from a place of loving yourself, then you will understand that it will take time for your body to adjust to your new body, um, to the new weight. And you will do things to make your body feel good as opposed to do things to making your body feel shit. And I just don't think, yeah, the diet, the diet industry, I don't think it's a sustainable, it's not sustainable. It's, it's, it's such a scam. Like it literally makes money from from people's insecurities yeah. about their bodies. Like I just I could never support it. Never. No. And you said there that you aren't sure like where this desire for smallness has come from. And the more I kind of read feminist rhetoric and look into it and things, it, it seems like it's twofold and quite sinister in that the smaller women are, the weaker they are, the more that men can dominate them. I really think it comes from like a heteronormative mm. idea of 
femininity, daintiness, this very Victorian yes. ideal of like women blushing, being quiet, chaste. Um, curvy women are overly sexualized and yeah. these very and whereas younger uh, not younger slimmer women are viewed as younger and that's creepier as well yeah so I do think there's this kind of creepy sexualization and idea of dominance that we can dominate that uh, women who are who are strong physically stronger mm-hmm. and, and bigger might mm-hmm. be seen as a threat to men I, I think and emasculating I think that's one of the things and the other thing you brought up was uh, obviously the diet industry which basically it makes money because diets don't work so you can bring out mm-hmm. 50 diets a year and you'll always sell it because you're always going to have to get a new one if diets works they'd have no money because you'd go on one diet and that would be it. would be sold <laughs> and then they wouldn't be able to sell again. And I wanted to ask you about your relationship with your mum because my mum also triggered dieting in me in mm. that I used to do things like the cabbage soup diet at home, which is where you basically just eat boiled cabbage and then oh have God. like a banana. And she would just let me do that. And I was at 16. But she was doing it from a place of... She really believed, I think, growing up as well, she thought that women should be thin. She still now says things, which I'm like, she's 60 and it's unbelievable. Mm. And she'd be like, my tummy. And I'm thinking, you've had three babies and you're sick. Who gives a shit? Like, why do you care? And I think she was brought up, and I wonder if maybe your mum was the same, where the value on women was put so heavily on how they look. So we've got much more autonomy and much more access to careers Mm. and being independent. And, like, no one really cares if we get married. Mm. Because I think my mum's ideals growing up, probably she would have been brought up an idea where a woman's values were very specific to being mm. this very specific kind of beauty and so she would almost encourage me to lose weight even though I was not fat by any stretch of the imagination mm. do you think that your mum kind of allowing you to diet as well mm. might have come from that slightly old-fashioned idea towards women's bodies I think so I think with my mum so my mum's kind of almost like the opposite it was more my dad who was oh my gosh my dad was he was the one that was really on it about my weight but with my mum so she was overweight when she was younger as she got older though she lost all the weight but I don't think it was due to anything intentional I think she was just going through a lot of trauma at the time growing up and just a lot of really horrible things happened and so she just lost it by I guess stress and things like that and like now she's actually on a mission to put on weight because she's like a size eight and she's very petite, so she's like 4'11". So she's got beautiful, like, pear shape. She's actually got, like, stunning figure. But she's always like, I'm too slim, I'm too slim. I don't like this. I'm too slim. I want to put on more weight. She wants to put more weight on her bum, on her boobs. Like, all of these things. And to hear her say stuff like that, it actually makes me feel quite happy. Mm. I think when I was younger, when she put me on Weight Watchers, I think... I mean, I still don't really know where that came from. I think... Because that's when all the poppy fat started to come on. And I think she was so used to seeing me, I don't know, like quite slender as a child that she probably panicked when she realised that I was putting on um, a lot of the weight. And I think for her, it was more of a health thing. Yeah. Whereas with my dad, it was uh, an aesthetics thing. Yeah. So my mum, I don't have, like, yeah, we just did the Weight Watchers thing and then I came off it and then I told her, you know, I'm not doing this, it's not good. Because she didn't see the calorie counting when I was doing it as well she just kind of made the food and then just left me to it and she didn't see when I would like not eat all of it that kind of thing but after a while like she stopped kind of going on about my weight um I want to say when I was like 15 16 so I don't really attribute a lot of the um fat phobic related trauma to her with my dad however um because I take after my dad's build and stature and so my dad's side of the family are all quite like big vivacious you know loud matriarchal um women 
And so um, when I started putting on weight, because I'm the firstborn, and so me and my dad were very, very close, you know, firstborn, and, you know, we had this bond. And then as soon as I started putting on weight, he, he started to distance himself from me a lot, and I started to get in trouble a lot more, and he would be a lot stricter on me. He would always say that I eat too much. He would stop me from eating if we were eating at the dinner table. He would say, no, leave that bit, leave that bit. Um, he would punish me if he saw me eating a chocolate bar or anything like that. And I think the moment that really stood out for me was when I used to get bullied in school a lot about my weight, like physically beaten up by boys and just some really horrible uh, violence that happened at school. And I never used to tell anyone because I was just very meek and... At, one point I thought I deserved it because of how I looked but there was this particular issue that happened at school where we were in science and um some of the boys I think the teacher left to go to the toilet or something and one of the boys got some of the corrosive acid and he threw it over my neck and so my neck to this day is still a sh like three or four shades darker than my face um threw it over me in science kind of like burned the back of my neck everybody in the class was laughing and I was such a good student I didn't even want to leave the class to go to the bathroom because I was like I'm gonna wait for the teachers to come back so I just went to one of the taps you know those, like those yeah yeah those taps in like the science mm. class and another girl who was actually really lovely she like my only ally she helped me sort of soothe the area eventually went to the nurse all of that stuff so that was the first time that I told my dad that I was getting bullied and his response was uh, maybe if you weren't so fat you wouldn't be bullied and our relationship kind of just broke down from there like he's always had an issue with my weight and so yeah I think the majority of my insecurities with growing up being plus size was because of that rejection from him mm. and obviously when you start getting older and start getting into relationships or dating it transfers and then you start getting complexes when you get rejected by men as well because then it's it triggers that rejection that you get from your dad this is something I only recently learned in therapy as well like but I would I would always notice that I would get even though I'm confident when it comes to guys I'm like that same 10 year old very very insecure girl and I realized it's because I have that link with men rejecting me because of my size because of my dad so he was the one that was like really sort of draconian when it came to my weight my mom she's easy like she's all right like <laughs> she's always been okay well daddy issues is a saying for a reason I mean yeah. those things that happen in your formative years with your father I think informs so many of us and I do think that especially like I think we're a similar age mm. the, the the parental structure and obviously it's different in every family, but I think back then, I think now couples probably have a very equal balance, but mm -hmm. I do think men in the household years ago and certainly in different cultures and things have a very different attitude towards their daughters. So I think oh, we've yeah. all grown up a little bit fucked up uh, yeah. because we didn't have kind of consistent, normal love, loving dads. I mean, obviously yeah. some people do, but actually a lot of my friends and I are like, we didn't have like a normal relationship with our fathers. Yeah. Um, I'm so sorry that that happened. It's just so traumatising and sad to go through that as a child. Yeah. And to think it's kind of, to have the blame then put on you and told that, you know, well, it's your own fault is awful. Mm. Did the school take any action on that or did you not really tell them? They took action eventually because something, really, something worse happened yeah. in school. Um, so... The, the bullies were smart. It was a it was a group of five boys in my year, and I think two in the year above. 
And my school, um, it was just really weird in that it was so, it wasn't cohesive in terms of the kids playing together, I guess, because everybody, it was different, um, different classes of people. So I went to, oh, I don't want to bait up the school, actually. I went to school in Westminster. <laughs> and so the, the classes were very different. So lots of middle class, all the middle class people played together, all the working class people played together. So all the working class people were from like, Stockwell, Brixton, Camberwell, and then all the middle class were like from Belgravia and Chelsea and all of that stuff. And so because I didn't really talk to anyone, but I was black plus size, but didn't necessarily have the idiolect of somebody that was working class or from South London, I was such a target because, you know, people would call me, oh, you're a bounty or an Oreo. Like, why do you sound white, but you're black? Like all of these kinds of things. And it was normally like black kids that would call me that. So then... I was like a target and I guess they zeroed in on my, the way that I spoke, but then also my weight as well. And so I was, I just felt really embarrassed to talk to anybody about it. I, I, we had a school counsellor, but I, I just couldn't, I'm, I was so used to suppressing things and decompartmentalizing things because I was, I just wanted to learn and you know I was one of those like boffins I just really liked learning and and all of that stuff and um the bullies were smart they would always attack me when nobody was looking our school was huge it was like a submarine like it was just a big it was a huge 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 school with loads of nooks and crannies and so my favorite thing to do would be at lunchtime I'd go to the music department uh because nobody <laughs> nobody went there at lunchtime everyone was out and um, I would go there and we would have like the, um, what do you call it? The practice rooms full of pianos. And I would lock myself in a practice room, eat my lunch there, tinker on the piano, read, whatever, and then go back to lessons. And so they would always follow me there and beat me up and then leave. Fuck. And so on one occasion, I think it was like year 10, you know, when you, you're allowed to go out to buy lunch. Yeah. So you don't have to stay in the cafeteria. So we would go out and... Um, get lunch from like everyone just used to go to the chip shop it was so unhealthy um or greg's and so i remember there was a time when i went to go and um eat lunch on this council estate that was close by the school because they had like these really cool not like a reading area but it was like these chairs it was like a really nice area basically to like read or chill out and so i went up to this it must have been the second or the third floor and i went to go and um read, have my packed lunch, and I didn't know that they'd followed me. And so um, it got to a point where they kind of like, it was kind of like a being taken by surprise. So they pulled out my um, earphones from my Walkman. That's how long ago this was. And, um, and they started, you know, saying all the usual stuff, you're fat, this, 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 nobody will love you all of these things. And I think at that point I'd had enough. Like I kind of wanted to snap and just be like, you can't do this to me anymore. And I really wanted to stand up for myself, which I kind of did. Unfortunately, because we were on the second floor, I guess they were very shocked and um, angered by the fact that I was trying to stand up for myself and that I was shouting at them. They'd never seen, normally I'll just take it. Mm. And so it was about five of them. They started sort of pushing me to one another so they started pushing me between them um and just like slapping me across the face and things like that and then one of them pushed me and I fell um I fell over the 
the balcony basically oh um God. and broke my lower spine um I can't the thing is with that I can't remember too much about it's like it trauma quite traumatic yeah um, you talk about it. No, it's it's fine. I haven't really spoken about it that much because a lot of it, it was like a lot of legal stuff that had to be rectified. So for the longest time, we couldn't speak about it. But a couple of them were in juvie, um, which and I actually have heard from one of them via Facebook, who I've since blocked because I just don't need. Did all they of that. try to apologize? Or they they tried to apologize, right. and I was like, no, no, I did. I blocked them and I didn't respond. I just read it and I was like, okay. Yeah, you don't owe them response, 100% not. Yeah, I didn't. And so that was when the school had to get involved because they were like, why is our student lying, like, unconscious on the floor? Um, kind of thing. And that was when, like, because my mum was travelling a lot at the time. And so that was when she got back. That was when we kind of had to go through all the legal stuff. And, and that's when I developed depression. So I was 14. And then I developed depression. And, yeah... I can't remember too much from that because it was such a blur, but it was, yeah, to, horrible. To, to be treated like that at that age is, well, it's inhumane. It's basically treating you like you aren't a human. And mm. that is like the one of the most horrible stories I think I've ever heard. <laughs> and so I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. But I think that I assume that there'll be other f people in fat bodies and other women of colour who who've experienced this kind of bullying and oh, yeah. cruelty because, and the reason that I wanted to use the word accept in the title is because so many of the things you'd said, if we could just accept that people can be fat and that's the end of the sentence, not you can be fat if you do this or you can mm. be fat, just people can be fat, mm. then you would have had access to buy clothes, not just from Simply Be and Evans because shops would have popped up earlier to cater to it. I feel like the reason that fashion wasn't available before was because people thought, well, no one's destination is being fat, so we don't need to cater clothes for them. Exactly. And with the bullying and things, children, I mean, they're children, but how pervasive must that be for a child to feel like they have the vitriol to be able to physically harm another student mm. because they don't fit into their understanding of, of like what people should look like. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I mean, it's... Do you know what's funny, though? It's the funny thing... One of the funny things that happened, actually, recent, as recently as a year ago, was that one of the boys, not the one of the ones that pushed me, because I think it was only two that were charged for that, the others, I don't know what they got. I, I didn't. I couldn't give a no. shit because I was going through like healing and things. But one of the ones that used to bully me all the time, actually, <laughs> on Tinder, they swiped for me, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, is that?" Da, 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 da. And so I went onto his profile and I scrolled down, and it said, "Oh yeah, I like um, plus size women," and I was like. You fucking dickhead, you were bullying me for being plus size and now it turns out that you like plus size women. And I literally, I I just laughed for like five minutes and then like, swipe, like I didn't swipe oh. for him. I was just like, is this where it comes from? Because you hear a lot about people, when you're a kid, you yeah. tease other people because you like them or like you, 
I don't know, you project something onto somebody because you either want it or you're not happy with yourself mm. or whatever. So it was a weird case of this guy, like, swiping for me, but yet was bullying me as a child. Like, it's just so childish. I don't know. I just thought that was quite humorous. Like, okay. And also look how well you're doing. That's, like, kind of the best thing ever is that you're doing yeah. amazingly and that you, like, you basically survived being treated like that I quickly want to ask you about dating actually what yeah. what do you feel when people kind of like fetishize because would you call that fetishization of bigger bodies when people say I like plus size women or do you think it's just them kind of opening up and being like mm. I, this is what I'm attracted to how do you feel about that kind Ooh, of thing it's such a thin line you know because I know that there are some men some women but mostly men who are scared of saying that they like big women because people will automatically say it's a fetish right um equally it's it's so nuanced because I think when you are in that position where men are swiping for you or messaging you, it's all about the language. So when it comes to being fetishized, you can instantly know when someone's fetishizing you if they 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 always talk about your body. They don't talk about the things that you like or dislike or your aura, your intelligence. It's always about, I like, you know, your fat body. I like your roles. I like your this. And they're always being hypersexual in their messages. So... For me, it's always a case of it being a fetish plus my race. So they'll always say, oh, I've never been with a fat black girl before. Or oh, I, I think you guys are, I mean, I've heard you guys are aggressive. I've heard you guys are really dominant in bed. Those things are very, anything that's very hypersexualized automatically, I think is quite a fetish. Whereas for, because there are men that do genuinely prefer bigger women um, where they are, I don't know. If you like big women, please slide into my DMs because <laughs> some of us are starving out here. <laughs> like, honestly, like, don't know where they are, but I know that they exist and I know that some of them are in like, really happy relationships with plus-size women. Um, and there are some men that just don't give a shit. They'll be like, yeah, I like bigger women and then they date plus-size women. But then there are some men, I think they're so scared of being put into that fetish box or they're so scared of being seen as a freak mm-hmm. that they don't say anything and they continue to maybe sleep with plus size women but won't be seen with them yeah do it quietly kind of thing. do it quietly so in the case of like with my ex like even with him like he after a while did say that he was kind of scared of saying that he did prefer plus size women because he felt like he had an image to uphold and he's like this tall white slim athletic guy and so he I guess there was an expectation that he would go out with like a, a you know a really small petite white girl but in in fact his preference was plus size women of color plus size black women and so he felt like he had to keep that to himself yeah. until he moved to london and then realized that we're all over the place yeah um but yeah i do think that um i've always said when it comes to plus size dating and obviously it doesn't this is just a generalization it's not with every plus size woman but i feel like you're either um humiliated fetishized or ignored and it's, it just seems to be those three pillars of fuckery when yeah. it comes to it. And it's really unfair because women, like, I don't think women ever kind of feel a way, not that anyone should be shamed for dating whoever they date, but a woman can kind of date someone who looks like whatever. Mm. And if they're funny or if they're what it could be like the ugliest man you've ever seen in the world but if they're a little bit funny everyone's like oh my god we love him yeah <laughs> but as a man you're so right and I think it comes back to this kind of uh, again the heteronormative idea of ownership where men's or girlfriends I think it must be like subconsciously it's kind of like your um 
candy on your arm. And even if they don't consciously feel that, if society is marginalizing a certain group or a certain mm. look, mm. then I think that that's part of like the patriarchal structure is that, and I, I think in a weird way, I think that is also quite um, hard for men in that like, I do think that women have a f- some freedoms within the patriarchy that like men don't have. Yeah. But then men can be fat and I feel like they don't receive anywhere as near the same amount as hate as women oh my if God. any no i mean it's so police women's bodies in general not mm. even just fat bodies are policed so much and you know even it's even if you look at things like cartoons the simpsons family guy american yeah. dad all fat guys with slim wives totally normal nobody gives a damn about that you see all of these celebrities james corden dj Khaled, rick ross all of these like plus size women with men with slim women again nobody makes a comment they appear um so dj khaled and rick ross have appeared shirtless on the front of magazines nobody says anything tess holiday does it on front of cosmo and it's a huge scandal with pierce morgan just thinking in his head i fucking hate him (laughs) he's just like you know saying all of this stuff on good morning britain and so i think it's just a case of women's bodies just being so unfairly policed and it speaks to what you said earlier about the femininity and being small and dainty because and I said this on another podcast recently actually we were having a discussion about our types of men that we like and I said that I've always gone for men that are really tall I don't know if it's because my ex was really tall he was like six five but I've always and this might even be ingrained fat phobia who knows something that I have to unlearn but I've always been attracted to taller men or men that are of a slim to athletic build because it makes me look smaller yeah. or it makes well, you me feel look, smaller in their arms I feel smaller like... in their arms I feel safe I feel protected um and we were having a discussion about oh Steph would you ever date somebody that's like five seven five eight and I was a bit like well I I don't know if I would only because I feel like walking down the street it might look a bit odd but why do I care you know what I mean? And even, and then other things like, oh, from the bedroom, would you be able to hand, like, it just goes with all these other technical um, strength things. But like, yeah. for me, I really had to stop and think and be like, why do I like tall men? Is it, do I, am I genuinely attracted to them or am I attracted to how they make me feel? And I think it's a bit of, I think that also I'm not a therapist but I kind of thought this stuff before I didn't have the best relationship with my dad and I think that some of it can also be that if you don't have a strong male figure in your life Mm. the idea of someone that's really tall and big I used to go out with like really alpha male guys that would turn out to be Mm. arseholes but very tall and really muscly and that made me feel small I think it's a protect kind of like a a protection feeling so if you don't have a strong male figure in your life I think sometimes you can uh, gravitate towards someone that you kind of mix up like what you're looking for yeah. in order to replace I mean again I'm not a therapist but I do often no, think there's sense. so many things going on with with that and and that's also I mean this is the one thing guys have you know when someone tweets like if you're a guy under six foot don't at me and they all go mad and it's like with <laughs> yes. women it's like if your waist isn't at 26 oh. and your boobs aren't like looking up to the sky and yeah. the endless list of <laughs> things that a woman's body has to be uh but we're talking about, we've, we've spoken, I guess, about being in a fast body, but talking about the intersection of race, you mm. talk, you've got natural hair, and have you always had your hair natural? Uh, always, so I've always had natural hair, and then, so we, well, a lot of black women tend to sometimes um, relax their hair or perm their hair, yeah. so straight, uh, chemically straighten their hair. My mum decided to, have you seen the movie Coming to America? No. 
Okay, so it's this Eddie Murphy film and it's got like a um, like really famous scene where there's a, I don't know if you've heard of a hairstyle called the Jerry Curl. No. Um, so in Lizzo's video Juice, right. in the beginning, she's got like her hair in tight yeah, curls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the Jerry Curl. Okay. And it's, it's, it's basically like um, a curly perm, but it uses really intense chemicals. My mom decided, she saw the movie and she was like, Steph, let's experiment on your hair. And my hair used to be like down to my like elbow. It was like really long and thick. And she she did this jerry curl, which was supposed to do in a salon. We did it at home. And it turned out okay, but my hair just, <laughs> just, just dropped out. It all just dropped out. So I was, I was looking a bit like Lionel Richie. I had like this really short, weird kind of curly bob thing. And so my hair never grew back the same afterwards. Right. Um, and so when I was at university, um, cause I, after the curly perm grew out, I started chemically straightening my, straightening my hair. Um, university, I was like, I'm going to go natural cause I miss my natural curly hair and it's healthier and all of that stuff. Um, maintained it for about a year. Went back to perming it again. Um, not because of any kind of standard of beauty. It's for me, it's more a case of I'm very low maintenance when it comes to my hair and Afro hair is for me, not for everyone, but for me, it's so difficult to maintain because it's dry and just the knots and it takes, it literally takes about nine hours to dry. And so I was just like, I've got things to do. Like I can't, yeah. I can't, let me just straighten my hair for convenience. And then sort of last couple of years, I've just been like, no, I actually miss my Afro. Nice. So yeah, I've decided to kind of like stop perming my hair. It's funny you bring this up because I actually about the like chemi- um the chemicals because I recently reread White Teeth by Zadie Smith and mm-hmm. the daughter in that she goes and gets her hair done and they she's never had it done before and she'd washed her hair and apparently went to have not washed her hair when they put those chemicals in. It basically just like burns yeah. all her hair. You have to wait about half an hour before you wash it off. Yeah. And it's funny. This isn't funny, actually. This is really embarrassing. <laughs> I grew I went to private school and I grew up in a very um white area and mm. The only people of colour, the only girls in my year all had weaves. So I had never seen an afro. Mm. So I genuinely just thought, like one of my friends had a weave, but braided weaves. Do you know what I mean? So it's like long braids, but it wasn't her hair. I just thought she plastered her afro down to like Right, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So uh, extensions, she's got like it, a, extensions, yeah. braids, yeah. And I, I didn't realise it wasn't till then my friend then came to school who was mixed race and she had her full afro art and I would constantly ask her to touch it and play with it. Now, for, which is awful and we'll come on to that because you've spoken about this a lot. But, um... When she was growing up, I've also had her on the podcast and she spoke about how, because she grew up in such a white area as well, mm. she didn't even know the microaggressions that she was going through because mm. she was so assimilated. Of course, yes. And I found it really interesting. Now I feel like I've learned so much from speaking to different people and feel so grateful to know because it's fucking embarrassing when I see those videos on Instagram of like white women going up to mm. women and being like, can I touch your hair? But for people that maybe aren't enlightened... Um, could could you talk more about hair? Because I think it's it's one of the really good pinnacles of explaining microaggressions mm. and also I think cultural appropriation. I guess like with the Kardashians and cornrows and things. I know mm. it might be a bit of a big topic, but I think mm. it's a good it's a good kind of signal point mm. to explain how like when we take something from our culture that isn't ours, that's previously mm. been mm. really. Um, I don't know what the word is, but do you, mm. do you know what I'm what, what yeah. going on? Yeah, no, definitely. So I think with Afro hair, it's such a political statement for black people because even I mean even existing in our bodies doing nothing is political in itself when you add an afro to that it's even more political because it's kind of like a a a sign of like 
going against what society says is beautiful and an afro obviously being so different to straight hair because it's you know it's um it's a bit kinkier it's drier it's a lot more tightly curled I think there's always been like this fascination behind it because and mostly it's to do with what does it feel like what's the texture and I don't think there's anything wrong in people asking you know what it feels like or you know anything like that where the problem lies is when people don't ask permission mm. and then they sort of put their hands in your hair so not only is that a gross you know, invasion of privacy, it's almost a case of not treating this person like a human being because you wouldn't go up to, like, say if it was a white woman doing this, you wouldn't go up to another white woman and just put put your no. hand in their hair because you know that texture and you, I feel like you would have a degree of um, respect not to, you know, go into their personal space. But when this happens to us quite often, it's, it's incredibly dehumanising. Um, it's incredibly othering as well. Um... It's totally fine to ask questions. And I think especially if you've sort of grown up in a predominantly white neighborhood, it's natural to to be curious, I suppose, if you haven't seen this hairstyle and know anything about it and that kind of thing. So I've always been happy to answer questions about it because um, people get curious, like it's, yeah. you know what I mean? But I think for me, it's when the physical, when it's a physical thing, when they start touching it or pulling it or anything like that, it makes me feel like I'm a pet at the zoo, mm. as if I'm kind of, um, I'm I'm an attraction. And that's where I have the problem. It, it, it's potentially, it can come across as a bit triggering just because I know that, you know, back in the day we had, you know, human zoos and they were filled with pygmies in Africa and people would pay to touch their hair and touch their teeth and then we have Zara, um, Sarah Bartman who was a South African woman with a really big bum and she mm. was brought to the UK and put in a zoo for white people to touch her bum touch her vulva um, look at her seen as specimens and I feel like to this day sometimes because we have things that are a bit different we're almost sometimes seen as a specimen to be touched and um, inspected and not seen as human beings. That's exactly what it makes me think of now that I kind of understand it. I just think that's, again, that ownership thing of like, why the fuck should you be able to touch someone else's hair? And yeah. I do think like somewhere deep down, it must be like trauma runs, trauma and history, I think carries on. Oh yeah, definitely. Subliminally. So I think that that, it's like, it must be just echoing in people's bodies that they think they are able to do that and it's so yeah. rank when you do break it down and you really think about yeah. like where we've been yeah it's really awful because once upon a time white people were allowed to do that they were allowed to go to up to any black person and touch their hair and we weren't expected to react otherwise we would get in trouble so there's those bits of ownership and kind of like oh I have the right to do this to somebody that I consider less mm. than me because you wouldn't do it to somebody who looked like you therefore you must see me as a dickhead or you must see yeah. me as like you know somebody that is less than you and I think where cultural appropriation comes into it it's an it's again it's another difficult one I, I just feel like because our hair is so diverse we can braid it in a multitude of different ways cornrows is always going to be a point of contention it's always going to be very sensitive to us because it's not just a hairstyle it's a language for us it was a way for us to communicate it you can braid specific um, sigils and signs into hairs that would differentiate differentiate the tribes in Africa. In America, 
um, people would plant um, grains of rice into the hair um, so that, you know, women and, and other people wouldn't go hungry when they were on the underground railroad. I saw railroad. you tweet that. It's incredible. Yeah, and also they were used as maps to escape the plantation. Wow. So different cane row, um, corn row patterns would show you the way out of the plantation. So it's so political and so significant for us. So when we do see people that aren't of the culture wearing it because it's just really cool, it's just a bit like, do you know the cultural significance mm. behind that? Same with locks as well. And, you know, locks, dreadlocks are a um, black uh, religious statement. So it's a religious thing. So I completely understand when, you know, people that are Rastafarian get very upset when they see people who aren't Rastafarian wearing dreadlocks and things of that nature as well. Um and I've always just said, you know, I feel like black culture is so dominant. It's so powerful. We're just really cool. And, yeah. you know, music and 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 um, culture and clothes and, and all of these things. Like, I feel like it's contributed to a lot of the culture that we have in terms of the media and entertainment and, and style and fashion. And you can appreciate stuff. But I think when it comes to kind of taking something oh, you know, doing the whole Kardashian thing, that's when we have a problem with it. And a really, really good analogy I read about cultural appreciation versus appropriation was, oh, what was it? What was it? It was basically somebody said it's like when somebody goes to a restaurant and they eat, they go to like a, yeah, they go to a restaurant, they eat the food, they really like the food and they ask to speak to the waiter, um, congratulate the waiter and then they tell all of their friends, oh, I've gone to this restaurant. That's appreciation. Appropriation apparently is like when you go to the restaurant, you eat the food, you don't say anything to anybody that works there and then you leave the restaurant, you then tell people that you created this meal yourself mm. and you replicate it um, at home and then you tell people, oh yeah, this is the thing that I created. Yeah. I feel like that's such a good analogy because you're not paying homage, homage to that specific race and especially in fashion when they take specific prints and then... They just sell it for thousands and thousands of pounds. It's just like, I yikes. We see this a lot in the blogging world. Like people, especially from like black or queer or fat artists or activists who create really amazing prints and pieces of work. Mm -hmm. And because of privilege and structures, meaning that like me as a white, white sits hat posh woman finds it probably easier to go on Instagram than maybe someone who doesn't have the same privileges. Mm. People like me who look like me and sound like me might co-opt art from people who don't have the privilege. And it's, really fucked up and it's still happening like every single day yeah and I just did a video about plastic surgery because I think this is really fucking interesting as well but mm. about how when I was growing up Eurocentric beauty was the thing so like blue eyes being white and like mm. looking quite uh Caucasian and mm. now it's like people want big bottoms which for years have always like black women have been kind of like naturally not always mm. had a bigger bottom mm -hmm. and then suddenly like the Kardashians make that fashionable mm -hmm. and suddenly that's a cool thing mm -hmm. and everyone wants that or like having and these features that we're kind of borrowing from different cultures I find that quite dystopian and very odd like so if you're white you can get filler and have like take a black woman's lips maybe and then maybe look to someone from Asian copy their eyes but those features on that person where they've kind of originated mm -hmm are not viewed as beautiful. I find this really weird. <laughs> it's it's weird, isn't it? Because I feel like the standard of beauty now, it isn't even really European anymore. No, it's, it's... It's like Kylie Jenner. I see filters on Instagram now that have the big lips and the almond-shaped eyes. And then freckles. Freckles. And, 
I'm not going to lie. I've used them before in the past because I thought they were cute. But now I, the more I use them, I'm a bit like, actually, why am I... Why? It's like, quite creepy because when you see your normal face, you're like, oh. I'm a bit like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm really trying not to use them anymore. Um, but it's, yeah, it's not, it's not really a European standard of beauty. It's like almost a black standard of beauty, yeah. but put on white, yeah. white bodies. And that's exactly what the Kardashians are known for, buying their body parts and, you know, because, and I feel like the reason that they all went down that route is because they have this attraction to black men and they know what black men like. And they, all of them, with the exception of Courtney, I think, yeah. have dated black men um, or have had babies by black men. And I think they know that black men like, you know, like I said in our culture in the beginning, having a big butt is like, you know, standard of beauty, um, hourglass shaped, big hips, small waist. But because they're not in our culture, they haven't done it properly. So you can tell that they've bought it because they haven't matched the thighs. Yeah to the bum so they've got big asses but their thighs are very athletic and so it, you look a bit like a chicken drumstick I'm not gonna lie like you, yeah and like you, you can't physically our... build that muscle without <laughs> building your legs exactly it's so fascinating to say that as well because Courtney's the only one that hasn't had a body done I think she's had a boob job there years ago go. but she hasn't had um like her bum done like Chloe and yeah. Kim have yeah and Kylie yeah, yeah. and when I was growing up as well the thing the thing is, for me, it was funny. I've I've definitely not got big legs, but I've always had I always had a shape as a little girl. This is why I thought it was fat. I wasn't fat. I just wasn't. You know, little girls that look really skinny and look almost like little boys. Yeah. I kind of missed that and just was had a little body, just yeah. like a little woman that had been shrunk. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I looked like. <laughs> so I always had legs, but when I was growing up, the cool thing was looking like Effie from Skins or like mm. Kate Moss and that like heroin chic, heroin chic, yeah, really wide apart hips, really skinny legs. So that was all I ever wanted and then one day suddenly the good thing that happened was the thigh thing because then suddenly I was like you've got amazing legs and I was like oh 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 really what (laughs) I've literally my whole life I would stand and pitch try and like twist my legs apart Mm. and it was and that's that transient idea of trends I find really weird as well because as you say like when I was growing up in movies people would be like does my bum look big in this and now all anyone wants to do is everyone wants a big bum (laughs) it's so weird how trends just like come in and out of fashion like I remember even with like Faces. Everybody wanted to look like Courtney Cox, and like back in the nineties, mm. everybody wanted that kind of scream mask face, where it was like cheekbones or just behind your ears, and all of that kind of stuff. And now it's like Kylie Jenner. Like everybody wants to look like Kylie and Kim. Everybody wants the big lips and the small nose and the almond-shaped big eyes and the high cheekbones. And um, yeah, people are actively going out of their way to have surgery to look like that. And I think even with the lips, like. Even me, like, I wouldn't even consider my lips to be big. But when I was younger, I always wanted, like, really, really big lips. Um, and I remember, even though my lips aren't that big, in school... I think you've got nice lips. Do you? They're oh. shapely, yeah. They're not oh, small. Thank you. Oh, good. Thank you. Hell no. Because <laughs> like, I feel like by my standard, it's not that big. Right. Or that plump. Plump, I think, is probably the better word. Uh, but I used to get bullied about them as well. Um, and so it's so interesting to mm. see that now that we're here, everybody's sort of wanting to have that kind of fuller look. And I remember there was a thread where people were accusing Beyonce of having lip surgery. And I was just like, that the fucking cheek? Like, she's a black woman. Yeah. She's got naturally big lips. Like They did the same to Samira on Love Island because they were talking yes, about everyone's stuff. And they then did. they were like, and she was like, I'm just black. <laughs> yeah, so we've 
we've had this for ages. You guys have just been yeah. teasing us for like the last 15, 20 years and now it's in fashion. The, the juxtaposition of people getting their body done to the extent that the Kardashians are and then fat acceptance and body neutrality and all the stuff is, I think, really interesting. And mm. there's kind of two camps and I see both of them in the people that I follow. Mm. Do you think that the future of the way that we look at bodies is going to get better? Like, are you hopeful that we will accept fat bodies? Because sometimes I am. I'm like, oh my God, we're going complete the right way. Mm. And then something will happen where someone will go, oh, but the thing is that they are impacting their health mm. which that was the hardest unlearning for me was mm. that because also I used to just smoke 20 a day I fucking love smoking mm. even now I'm like it is so cool. <laughs> I don't do it but I kind of wish I did mm. and I would go out and drink loads and I and I was really skinny at one point barely eating so my health at that point in time could have been way worse than someone in a fat body mm. and that's quite a lot of unlearning because of the bullshit that we mm. get fed in the media mm. and I think it, it's starting to happen but I'm, I'm wondering, like, when will, like, basically something's got to give. I think mm. that diet industries are really actually being taken down by amazing accounts like yours and mm. other people who are really speaking out. And actually, we've seen that skinny teas and things are being blocked. And there mm. is definitely a movement. Mm. Do you think it'll ever go far enough so that you'll be able to really genuinely walk down the street and mm. feel like no one's going to fucking look at me and think? Or if the, the thing that Sophie Hagen talks about a lot, she says how, like, she can't go and eat a burger, which mm. she can, but... If, if I ate a burger, they're like, oh my God, that's so cute. You yeah. eat so much. <laughs> mm. But if you ate a burger, someone would be like, oh, you sure you want to eat mm. that? Yeah. Um, I think the only way that we can thrive in our fat bodies, um, not even fat bodies, whatever kind of, um, whatever section of your life you're in. So even if it's, you know, you're queer or you're disabled or um, person of colour, like whatever the case, however you choose to present and exist, the only way we can do that and feel completely comfortable, it's going to sound extreme, but I honestly think it's true. There's a certain demographic of people that need to just die. die. Yeah. And <laughs> Brexit wouldn't have happened as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's that demographic. I think it's the demographic, it's the, what are we, gener- uh, millennial generation X? Yeah. Gen- or baby, baby boomers. Boomers. Boomers my just, parents. Boomers, yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> boomers just need to go because I feel like a lot of the trolling and stuff does come from them. A lot of the health concern comes from them. And they've taught their kids that yeah. and then their kids were taught that. Da, da, da. So I think it's great that millennials, like our generation is like the first generation to actually be, I hate this term, woke. Um, but it's such a good thing. It's such a great start to what could potentially be amazing in the next 10, 20 years. And for us to really thrive, like the Pierce Morgans of the world have need to just, to they need to just hurry up and die um, because they're still, they still have such a toxic mentality towards body positivity, fatness, always assuming it with health. And the reason why they are so persistent with their trolling is because obviously fatness is a physical thing that you can see. Smoking and drinking and taking yeah. drugs, sometimes it does show on the body, but if a, if a fit person is doing it, you can't tell totally. unless that you know you like you can't tell at all, and so that's why I don't think it gets as um, monitors and policed as much as fatness does because you can see the fat, whereas yeah. you can't see the coke or the whatever like working within their systems. And also, when you say about um, like you're saying earlier about Facebook and that's all, all older people, it's so true. Yeah. I did an ad with Ancestry, and my mum was in it with me because it was part of the campaign about oh, yeah. finding out about your family, and they were like, "Can we link this onto a Facebook page?" Which I don't post on, but I have it, and mm. they wanted to like boost it through there, and I was like, "Yeah, whatever." there's my link whatever the comments underneath that were from middle-aged men going I'd fuck them both like the, <gasps> all of it was about getting with me and my mum or shagging my mum first then shagging and I've actually mm. to email them like you need to take this down like no one on Instagram 
or no, I think we're the empathetic generation. That oh, generation, yes. especially those men of that age, yeah. are so bitter and so fucked up because I think they genuinely think like everything's being taken away from them. I think mm. they can't, they can't compute. They can't, especially white men, white, can't believe that they've men, got yeah. through life like literally having a joyous time, mm. and suddenly there are young, vivacious women and men and non-binary people coming up who aren't living by these rules, which like profit them because exactly. fundamentally and ultimately they are the, they are starting that nothing will be happening to them but they'll be starting to feel what it might feel like mm. to not have every door open for you mm. and I think Piers Morgan first of all I think he I think he's just a sh- like says shit that he doesn't mean like for the point of being contrarian which I think is even more sociopathic yeah because you're literally putting people's lives on the line like some of the things he says about trans people Endanger trans people like yeah. I don't know why he's horrible on everyone everyone he speaks about but I think his life has to be so fucked up because I'm so and um, you are I can totally tell and all of our generation are so empathetic everyone's yeah. got so much time it's so kind obviously someone's being a cunt yeah That's such a good word I love it <laughs> then you won't but I, I think I hate I hate and love the word snowflake because it's so stupid it's like yeah. we're just fucking kind we That's have time for people and we listen and we allow people to be how they want to be yeah and imagine this is how judging it's, it's people should, for that I, like this is how it always should have been yeah and it really fucks me off when people call those who are talking about mental health specifically people that suffer from anxiety and depression which is what like one of the two most popular sort of mental health issues popular ones not in a good way but it's like they're my favorites out of all of them it's like it's the two most um yeah like yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the ones that people meant. yeah oh god that's so bad. no that's <laughs> funny i like it <laughs> they're the two ones that are like you know it's easy to kind of get in a sense Mm. and people call us snowflakes when we say we have anxiety like I see that a lot online and I'm just like this is ridiculous anxiety's been around since the beginning of time it's just it's either a case of people didn't have the word for it or people were told to suppress it or people were told you know back in Pierce Morgan's day weren't allowed to talk about depression weren't allowed to talk about this or otherwise they'll take you away to an asylum or here's this, you know, woo-woo product that you should take slime and mix it with dandelions and drink it and you'll be, you'll be cured, you know? And so I feel like we're the first generation where we're actually openly talking about things such as mental health, fat phobia, racism, feminism, um, um, queer rights, you know, all of these things. And this is how it should be. This is how it's, it should have always been. Totally. And they just hate to see it. They totally, it is that. And if and if we'd done it all this time, like we wouldn't have. If we were accepting of everything, like if we accepted there are people who are disabled, we wouldn't have ableism because we would have built systems to fit people. If we weren't fat phobic, then we wouldn't have seats that were too small for people in fast bodies, or it wouldn't be like the reason we'll that we're having, for everyone. We're undoing all the shit that they've done. The only yeah. reason that we're doing this work now is because they the structures were built by men like Piers Morgan. Yes, so <laughs> just blame them for everything. Who yeah. had a very specific vision and very specific set of things and they were like cis hat might probably loads of them were gay but they couldn't say yeah, exactly. so yeah I, I i i feel hopeful for the future i feel like that's you feel that way too i do yeah i feel i feel hopeful i think this generation you know like even with my mom like my mom is just my mom we always have the worst arguments when it comes to these kinds of subjects because she is a black woman that was raised in the UK at a young age. She was the only black person in her school, lots of racial abuse, lots of traumatic things that happened. So she's grown up learning how to survive. And so her 
thing of surviving was assimilate, mm. um, you know, blend in, don't be too much trouble, don't say this, don't say that. And now she sees me as an activist. She follows me on Twitter, which I was just like, Mom, please don't. Oh, no. But I, she'll yeah. see me saying all of these things. Like, Seth, don't say that. You're going to anger this. Don't say that. The problem with you, Snowflake. And she's like, she's like, and she's a Tory as well. And I'm just like. Oh, don't. They all are. It's their age group. I try. I'm like, Mum, <laughs> you're, you're, Mum, no. You're like a black, like, you're, like, she doesn't like, like, not Piers Morgan. I mean, Boris might as well be Piers Morgan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All in the same circles, but. She doesn't like him at all, but I guess the thing, she grew up in that age where it's like, you know, and I've tried, I've tried. No, my parents are completely the same. My mum came in from Ireland, so both her parents were Irish, and they moved here when it was like, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Yes, so that's that was when my was here, growing yeah. up. And then my dad's parents are Hungarian, so he came in from the war. And then they'll start talking about immigration. I'm like, babes, you're both second generation immigrants. That's like, it. fucking idiots. Exactly. Like, but they're the same. They don't like Boris Johnson, but they also go, you weren't alive. You don't know. Oh my and I'm God, like, that's my mum. And you weren't here in our days when we had to do this and And that. I'm sure they do know stuff that we don't know. Like, I'm sure there is political stuff that they don't understand, but it's some things are too far removed. But my mum yeah. starts to listen to podcasts where I talk to her about things and she has actually come so far. Like she now answers about like relationships. She's got really good on gender and sexuality and Amazing. she suddenly comes out with things. And I'm like, I did a podcast about polyamory and I was kind of telling her about it, didn't know what she say. She was like, oh, well, that's what everyone's like nowadays, aren't they? They just <laughs> don't have any rules about anything. I was like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was like, oh, good. So she is listening but it's taken a fucking long time yeah my mum's the same like she's now starting to like like now she started watching RuPaul's Drag Race which <gasps> I thought she never would and now she's like oh Steph I love this person and this person and have you seen Paris is Burning and Netflix and I'm like wait a minute where's this coming from she's like Steph I love it and I love Pose and like I'm learning so much about like the trans culture and I was just like I, I like a single tear just rolled down my cheek I was like mum I'm so oh. happy about this new progression that you're making so, and even with things like fat phobia and all of this stuff, she's learning because yeah. of the stuff that I'm saying, but she just still has these little points of activism where she's like, no, you know, you just need to teach white people this and you need to do yeah. this. You need to do the emotional labor. I'm like, mom, I'm not doing that. Well, I'm I guess she had to survive for you to thrive. That's it. And, and, I, I, yeah. and I, yeah. And I always say you grew up learning how to survive and to survive, you had to do these things, but now we need to live. Yeah. I can't just get by on surviving anymore because there's so much inequality that we need to fix and so you have to be aware that our generation now we want to fight to live not to just survive yeah and um still what she's a work in progress but we'll get there <laughs> but you are you are really brave because I think one of the biggest things that I would well there's so many things but if I was one of the one of the fucking most the, the thing that I can't get over is the uh, the trope of the aggressive or angry black woman because I'm a really passionate woman who has a lot of opinions so if someone even if I had that against me if someone could use that against me I would literally be crying every day because I hate the idea of being silenced and I'm mm. very lucky my voice people will just listen to me because I sound and look how I do mm. and I that weaponization of like the angry black woman or the, mm. the aggressive black woman I can't imagine how difficult that must be to come up against that and feel like you have to monitor your language sometimes or mm. like check yourself so I think it's really really brave to be in a position anyway and you're doing an amazing job <laughs> oh thank you so much yeah that I mean the whole angry black woman is oh it's horrible it's but now I've just gotten into this thing where I just don't give a shit Good. I think we should be able to talk about the same things that annoy us as everybody else does and again this whole narrative of angry aggressive feral all goes back to slavery yeah. and colonization and seeing us as animals and less than and hypersexual and I, I the thing that I think annoys me the most is when um when there's something racially motivated or something racial happens in the news and then people 
send me the link and then they say, what are your thoughts on this? What are your thoughts on this? And I'm like, I'm not a rent and angry black woman. I can't, I do not exist to be traumatized and have, be expected to constantly put up emotional labor so that you can feel better about yourself. Like, why don't you have an opinion? Like, Mm. I'm not here to just be ranting all the time because it's so emotional, emotionally exhausting. And so that whole sort of rent and angry black woman, I think, I don't know if you follow Kelechi Okafor. Yes. She speaks about that brilliantly, like so beautifully. And I completely agree with her. Like we're not here to just be mammies and teachers and the help to teach you how to not be racist or to teach you how to not be oppressive or whatever the case may be. And so... And also, I feel like black women do have a right to be angry. Oh, totally. But that's what I mean. You should be at that. Like, the fact that even when you're not being angry, you're told you're being angry is the most awful gaslighting ever. Yeah. Because it's like you're you're fucked either way, basically. Exactly. And I think, you know, we do have a right to be angry about just, I mean, where do I start? (laughs) So so many things, but... But then equally, there's this um, ideology that black women have to be strong. We have to not show emotions. We have to be... um, We're like these magical fairy people that, you know, we don't show any emotion and we don't cry and we don't do this and we don't do that. And that can be so exhausting because then, again, that's... You know, even though it's a positive thing that you're saying, it's still really dehumanising because you're not seeing us as women with empathy and emotions who, who are deserving of love and support and being able to cry and show emotion we're always taught to be strong and that's such a huge reason why a lot of us a lot of people within the afro-caribbean society we don't seek help when it comes to mental health because our parents have taught us stiff upper lip don't let them know that you're scared don't let men see that you're crying don't met you know all of these things and it we decompartmentalize and then when we get older it just all falls apart and that's the reason why uh, middle-aged black women are like some of the highest um, in terms of being sectioned. They're some of the highest because the, when they just break okay. down because of all of the struggles that we're going through in early life. And so I think it's so important to allow women to allow black women to be women as well, not just black women, but actually yeah, you're, yeah. women and let us cry and, you know, be upset and be sad and be angry as well without, but without putting that whole angry black woman thing, because we're not aggressive. Like, we're just the same as everyone else. Yeah. And it's that, like, like that, um, and it's really cringe, what is it? It's like people, fat, so instead of being, like, angry, it's not, all, but like, black women, mm. I try so much to always, or, like, if someone has a disability, not, say, disabled. But I also now try and call, every, so now that if I ever speak about someone who's white, I'll always say that they're white to try and, like, balance out the That's fact good. that I say a person of colour. Yeah. So but some of my friends, I'm like, so my white friend, and then it's just two of my white friends, and they're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, this is just how we do it now. Yeah. Um, I did actually ask you about Meghan Markle earlier, and I'm sorry, because I agree, I'm really guilty of doing that sometimes as well, when you're trying to, like, check something, but you're right. I think the, the final step towards, like, being an ally is recognising that you can be an ally and not feel like, first of all, you don't need some... I find it funny when people are often... People do it a lot on Rachel Cargill's page, and she always shuts them down, mm. where they'll be like... Um, oh, I've done this today. And she's like, great. Because <laughs> it's like, you don't need um, congratulations for not being racist. That yeah. should be like... Exactly. That, you know, that should be your default position. Exactly. Not You don't need to then go and like announce that you didn't treat a black person like shit. Like, exactly. That should have been your like automatic. It's so... And it's like, it's similar to like when men like, or like dads say, oh, I looked after my tartar. I know. Like, you don't need a star for being a dad. That's, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're right. Like, 
you don't need a, a, a star for not being racist. Like, I'm not, like, I, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. That's a great thing, but I'm not going to congratulate you and pat you on the back yeah. for being a decent human being. Yeah, totally. Oh, this has been amazing. I feel like we've touched for ages. I hope it hasn't been too stressful. I feel like I've, oh, it's no, been quite an emotional conversation. Not emotional, but a lot of... Heavy stuff. Yeah, heavy, heavy stuff. Shit. <laughs> if people want to learn more about you or what mm-hmm. you're doing, if you've got anything exciting coming up they can come to you, or where can they find you online? Um, so you can find me at stephanieyaboa.com and on Twitter um, at stephanieyaboa, Y-E-B-O-A-H. And then on Instagram, I'm at nerdabouttown. Um, my book, Fastly Ever After, oh, it's so weird, like, promoting so it now. Yeah, um, Fastly Ever After is coming out the 3rd of, oh, September which you can pre-order. And what am I doing? I'm doing Women of the World Festival in March, which will be really cool. I need to get the details for that. But I will be doing a few panels here and there in London, but I will update it all on my website and stuff. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I've literally loved this conversation. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for listening, guys. I will see you next week. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.